Welcome to episode 10 of the Inclusion Initiative, a JEDI AAEM podcast, a production of the Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion section of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. Each month, this podcast will feature established leaders as well as a diverse group of members in the specialty of emergency medicine. In this episode, Dr. Kimberly Brown speaks with Dr. Cortland Brown, current chair of the JEDI AAEM section. Cortland Brown, you are the new chair of the Justice, Equity, and Diversity and Inclusion section. And so thank you so much for sitting down and chatting with me. You and I know each other in periphery, like we've written a paper together, strangely enough, even though we've never officially had met each other until last year. And then we hang out in the same circles, but we're just, I just realized that I don't really know your background and what about you, like where you grew up, all of that. So tell me about how you grew up. Cool. So I grew up in Pittsburgh, big Steelers fan. You have to be, otherwise you get kicked out of the city. Uh, then I did my undergrad in Chicago, then med school in Connecticut in between undergrad and med school. I took a year off and I actually played woman semi-professional full contact football. Um, I was terrible at, but it was so much fun. Let's stop right there because <laughs> you just bounced to, okay, Chicago, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and then I was a football player. How did you even, t- tell me from the beginning, how the heck did you become a football player? I literally saw a sign-up sheet for tryouts. And you just said, why the heck not? Exactly. That's how I live my life. Okay. What what bad could come? Although at the time I thought I was going to be a surgeon, again, in okay. med school. And I was like, my hands are my money makers. Anytime the ball came to me, I would like protect my hands, which is not good when you're playing football. <laughs> no, you actually got to catch the ball. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh my goodness. Okay. So you did that. You said poorly because yeah. you didn't want to use your hands. So how long was that for? That was just my gap year. Okay. I just did so it poorly because I'm a terrible player. The right, hands so- were just icing on the cake. <laughs> so let's go back a little bit. So when did you know that you wanted to even be a doctor? Because you said at that point, you were already like, okay, surgery is for me. Let me protect these money makers. So when did you even decide to become a physician? Yeah. So this gets into a little bit of a personal story. And like I said earlier, I'm very comfortable sharing everything and love talking about the story of why I became a doctor. So I knew from probably when I was like 13, my dad was sick for most of my life. He had COPD. He was on oxygen. He had a lung transplant. I think the lung transplant was probably around 10. Then he had kidney failure, heart failure. So was on home dialysis. They did the home dialysis in my bedroom. So I remember coming home one day and there was like blood splatter all over the walls. Looked like some like attack had gone on there. And I just walked in with my friends and thought, didn't think anything of it. And so I think really just seeing how the doctors were able to help as well as actually hurt my dad. Um, So he passed away when I was 13. And this is probably a solidifying thing for why I wanted to go into medicine. So The reason why he passed away is because a doctor actually misplaced a decimal point on his immune suppression med and gave him 10 times the amount. Yeah. And that doctor, mistakes happened. They came up to us. They acknowledged it. They apologized. They talked about the implications, all of options, pretty much everything from there. And so seeing how that negative effect could still have a positive relationship out of it 
was really the one solidifying factor, I think. Wow. So I'm I'm speechless because one decimal point, Mm -hmm. which I'm thinking about as we think about risk management and we see the whole Swiss cheese model, I immediately was like, wow, it all boiled down to one decimal point, but how many systems failures happened so that was allowed to go through? Is there a pharmacist that missed that as well? Is there a nurse that missed that as well? And I guess from a physician standpoint now, I just, that's crazy. That's, it's wild. It's wild. So thinking like that now, thinking about all the systems failures, how are you still able to say, I still want to step into that system though? Yeah, it's a great question. I think just, again, it's those interpersonal relationships. So having that doctor come up and explain everything to us, having them be there to support us, even whenever like all we wanted to do was like punch them, basically having them still be the physician, despite that major error that they made, they were still able to help us through that. And so errors are going to be made, but I want to be able to be in the position where I can acknowledge them and I can help my patients and their families through them because If it's not me, it's going to be somebody else. And it's going to be somebody else that probably didn't have that life experience and may come from a different background. So they may not be able to navigate it or may not have that perspective that I have. So that's an incredible way to think about it. So it was that time, that moment that you're like, okay, I'm going to be a doctor. So how did you decide on, you said surgery, because when you were playing football, you were thinking about surgery, but was oncology not a first thought of yours or hemonc or anything like that? Why, how did you get to the surgery point? And then we'll talk about the EM point later. <laughs> so I actually wanted to be a transplant surgeon because just seeing, I remember the before and after of his transplant. And there's one memory that like, will just always stick with me. So I don't know if I had ever seen my dad run because he was sick like my whole, whole life pretty much. Maybe he got sick when I was like, four or five, but I don't remember much before then. And I remember after his transplant, I don't, I I was 10, so no idea concept of time, but some period after his transplant, we were on a beach vacation and he like ran a few steps on the beach and my mind was blown. It was like, it was such a mix of emotions. Number one, I was petrified because I was like, he doesn't run, he's going to break. Number two, it was like excitement. Wow. This is what medicine can do. This is what transplants can do. And number three, then went back to the fear of he's going to (laughs) break, but it was just, it was such an overwhelming moment. Just I think it was probably just like four steps, but it was incredible. But that was enough to put the faith in your heart to be like, no, it can work like science, medicine, this can be life-changing. That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. Okay. So now we got you playing football during your gap year still wanting to be a doctor. Why did you have to take a gap year? Was that a choice of yours or what put you in that position to have a gap year? So I did, I do terribly at standardized tests. Absolutely terribly. Yeah. 100%. I'm just like, I'm so bad at them. No matter how hard I study, I'm just, I'm not going to be the person that's good at them. So for my MCAT, I know that MCAT's different scores now, but I got at 27 at the time. Um, 
which was below average. So I think I had to take it again. Still got, I think a 28 or something, like didn't do much better, but I wanted that time really to study. So that's why. Got you. So no, same. You got much better than me. I think I got a 19, a 20. Yeah. I don't think I got higher than a 21. And college was fine. I I graduated magna cum laude. Like college was fine. I could take a test in college, but it's like when it came to how the MCAT wanted me to take it, it was just like, "Mm -mm, it's a wrap. I never got past that. Yeah. So I 100% agree. So you ended up applying broadly and you took Mm -hmm. you to Chicago. Was that a place? Chicago was undergrad. Yale was med school. Oh, got you. Got you. Got you. So Yale (laughs) You still got into Yale. That's an Ivy League. (laughs) I think it's interesting with med schools because there are a few of those quote unquote top schools, which has its own whole issue, but like that I think they acknowledge that they can take a chance on somebody that doesn't have as good scores, but they think will bring something else because they know all of their other students are going to pass everything without any issues. And so I think I was that chance because I had like leadership experiences. I had a passion for DEI that I had shown with my activities. So I think they were just like, if she doesn't pass, then we got everybody else that passes and hopefully we'll help her through it. <laughs> and here you are today. <laughs> so when did you decide that you wanted to be an emergency physician? When did so you make that? I, another interesting story. I actually decided as I was submitting my application. Yep. So I dual applied into child psychiatry. I was going to do one of the. <laughs> no, you know. Okay. Stop answering that question. How do you go from 100% like, okay, transplant surgery to child psych? Oh, ortho was in there in the middle. Ortho. Okay. <laughs> and then all of a sudden now, boop, you know what? I'm just going to do EM. It's fine. <laughs> Yeah, so I did a research year. So I did a Howard Hughes fellowship at the NIH. So that was between my third and fourth year. Mm -hmm. So I had a little bit of a delay where I was thinking about things. At Yale that time, I think we did like a one week EM rotation third year, but you don't know anything in third year and you don't know anything in one week. Like you're just excited to be there and you just wander around trying to find where the bathrooms are. So I was like, I don't know what this field is so didn't think about it and then I did my child psych rotation and got super passionate about biracial identity development and this kind of gets into what we were talking about earlier so I'm half black half white but obviously don't look it and so dealing with that as I was growing up Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to see if I could help other kids with similar or dissimilar issues so really passionate about child psychiatry biracial identity development but something just like, didn't feel right. And I remember one of my friends asked me, she was like, when you think about a physician, what comes to mind? And I was like, oh, obviously the person on the airplane that can help everybody. And then I was like, oh yeah, child psychiatry is great, but that's not going to be the person on the airplane that you want. I'm sure they'll remember things, but that's not, you want an EM doc. And mm-hmm. so I actually did my EM sub-I at my home institution while I was applying. And so I had submitted some applications before even having completed my sub-I, and then I never got a chance to do an away rotation. And after I finished my sub-I, I was like, oh, this is 100% it for me. And I, even on the worst days, I'm still so happy that I'm in this field. Wow. 
That's amazing. One thing I don't think we've ever talked about, I want to go back to the biracial identity portion, but I want to see if we know some same people together. So when were you at Yale doing your sub-I? What year was that? That would have been 2000 and I graduated in 15. So 2015 probably. Okay. So we graduated the same year. Okay. Oh, do you know Edo Lord? Do you know David Connor? Mark Brady? Okay. David okay. Connor sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. I'm also terrible with names and faces. That's okay. So they were all at Yale. They're all down this way in Memphis, but they all came from Yale. And it's just, I feel like everyone that comes out of that program. I don't know what Yale does to you guys, but you guys are all superhuman. So businesses, like multiple businesses, like working clinically, saving the world, like just everyone I know that's come out of Yale is like that and just kills it and just takes over. So I didn't know if they were your attendings when you were making a decision at that time. Honestly, they might have been. I don't remember. (laughs) It's It's okay. So that was the switch, but let's go back. So you said, like like you said, you're half black and you're half white, but definitely looking at you, if I was just to walk past you on the street, I wouldn't know that. So would you mind sharing a little bit more about what you felt connected to and the patients that you were seeing in the child side clinic and how you were able to develop that interest a little bit more? Yeah. So my, my dad was black. My mom's white. My dad was really involved in the Pittsburgh NAACP and civil rights movement. So he was president of the Pittsburgh NAACP. So I was basically raised like in that office, going to marches. Like that was my community. The black community of Pittsburgh was my community. My mom's family. So whenever my mom grew up, basically very under-resourced area, um, first in her family to go to college and my dad on the contrast like his dad was a judge my dad was a lawyer both of them went to ivy league schools and still whenever my mom brought my dad back to meet her mom for the first time her mom's reaction was you always did go for the underdog so all she saw really was my dad's color and so we're close with a few members from my mom's side of the family but not most of them and so really the pittsburgh black community like i said that was my family and so growing up A lot of them accepted me, but a lot did not. So we would have people come up to me on the street or come up to our house and look behind my ear to see if my skin was darker back there. And these were like random strangers. I was playing on my porch, literally would come up. And it was just assumed that because my dad was this prominent figure in the black community that everybody had access and should assume or should have the privilege to check that I'm darker also. So things like that. Also, my dad was in the hospital for a while. My parents always made sure to get me like black or biracial looking baby dolls. And so I remember walking around with them with my mom and people would come up to the street and say, get that girl a white baby doll like she deserves. And so just growing up with having a internal identity that conflicts so much with my external was really tough. And there's so pretty much nobody is one ethnicity anymore. Like we are all mixed. And so I think there's just going to be a lot more of kids that are just growing up in similar environments where they have these multiple backgrounds and they're trying to bring them all together into how they perceive themselves and how that. That's really 
shocking. It makes me immediately go back to the brown paper bag test. Mm -hmm. um, and some of the things that in the black community that we have done to each other mm -hmm. um, as a standard of who's better and who's not because of whiteness. I was thinking like every time, not every time, but a lot of times when a brand new baby is born, old folks, I will say like grandmothers, great grandmothers, oh, let's check the baby's ears. Yeah, let's check the baby's ears. Yeah. That's baby going to darken up a little bit. Don't you worry. Looks a little pale today. That's his real color coming yeah. through. Yep. And it's like things like that, or keep that baby out of the sun. We don't yeah. want that baby getting any darker, calling children in and things like that. The little things that happen to us along the way that we don't talk about, we just internalize it. And we don't know, we have a feeling as we're growing up that this isn't right, but we don't have the skills and the tools to like address, yeah. address that at all. Yeah. So, I love what you said though, that your dad was like an NAACP leader that I'm sure he's super proud of you now that you're like a leader in Jedi and diversity and equity and inclusion. It feels to me that it sounds like you're fulfilling a lot of your father's passion and his fire before he was able, before he was able to probably complete everything. Yeah. I think there's so much work to be done. So anybody that's passionate about it should just jump on in. <laughs> Absolutely. So that took you to residency. And mm -hmm. I'm sorry, we did residency at University of California, San Francisco. Okay. Everybody goes to these fancy, beautiful locations. So tell me about residency. Did, were you able to continue DEI work? What were you doing there? How did you find your way while you were in residency? Yeah, yeah. So in med school, I was super involved in SNMA. I was on the board for a lot of years. I was national vice president. And so then in residency, I continued that. I was on the Strategic Planning Council of SNMA. And just for anybody listening, SNMA is the nation's largest and oldest organization devoted to the needs of minority med students. It's incredible. You should donate to them. They do such incredible work. So I was able to continue that way. I also, with Jordan, Paul and I, we served as the inaugural AAM RSA DEI committee co-chairs. And I didn't even have a concept of what AEM was back then, honestly. I think I was just like, it's some EM organization. They're doing DEI work. There's a leadership opportunity. So I want to get involved. So that's another way. And then I just did some of my research was healthcare disparities. Pretty much anything that I could do was related to that. <laughs> Got you. That brings me to your AEM journey. So that was the door of you walking in is that AM just extended you an opportunity to, hello, see you, you doing your work. And so now you're stepping into this opportunity. So tell me that was in residency. So that was just only a few years ago. What has kept you around? Yeah. So I think the people, like the people and the mission, just knowing that I actually have a space here mm -hmm. and that every single organization is going to have its issues. AEM definitely has its issues, just like every other organization that I've been involved with and will be involved with in the future. But I think the people are all really passionate about what we do and passionate about the mission. And so we're able to see beyond those differences mm -hmm. and everything back to what is the underlying goal here. Absolutely. So as the new chair of the Jedi section, and it just, it, it feels so right now knowing that 
you come from such a great legacy. Seriously, it just, it, it feels almost like divine that this is supposed to be your time to, to do this work. And I think, especially because the section is so new. So where do you see the section going? And I'll even extend it out to where do you potentially see AEM going as far as how we lead more justly, equitably, diversely, and more inclusively? Yeah. So I think, oh, it's a tough question. Yeah. <laughs> you warm me up on all the small questions and now, just now we're going back to football. <laughs> I would say, so for the section, my biggest thing is I want to create protocols. So I want to actually create structure. Because okay. there are so many incredible ideas that all of our section members have. And we're actually, I don't know how we are compared to the other sections, but we're a really active section. We have a lot of section members that are doing incredible projects, podcasts, lecture series for HBCU medical students, other pipeline programs, lectures at scientific assembly. There's so much that we're doing. And so I really want to bring it in and create the structure so that it doesn't get lost year after year. So that's my goal as a leader. And then in terms of where I think we're going, so we this year are restructuring our work groups. So last year they were formed around tasks. And I don't want to say tasks because it seems like a negative thing, but like projects. So there was like a writing work group. There was an outreach work group. Whereas this year we're focusing them around populations. And so at our first meeting, we actually had a big brainstorming with everybody on the call and then I sent out a survey. And so members that weren't on the call were able to provide feedback. And really, people were really passionate about having the work group structured around populations. So one is Black, Indigenous, people of color. The other is LGBTQ. The other is individuals that are differently abled. Another one is language justice and patients that have limited English proficiency, as well as immigration. And so we're really trying to draw people together that are passionate about each of those groups. Mm -hmm. Within those groups, that includes patients, colleagues, physicians, like everybody. Like we're not just focused on improving the welfare of black physicians, but also black patients, black nurses, black healthcare techs, just our black community in general. Um, and so within each of those, then we're gonna have all of the different projects that you can do within that. Whereas before the work groups were like, if you're not interested in writing, you're not gonna be a part of the writing work group. And so if the writing work group is doing this project for individuals from the LGBTQ community, it felt it was hard to get involved in that. Whereas now if you're passionate about the LGBTQ community, even if you're not involved in writing, you can do any of the other projects with them. I love that. I think that's a fantastic idea. And you know what? Another thing that has been the talk of the town that has come out of our section is the health equity that went on at Scientific Assembly. Can you share more about that? I, I want to brag because I love to brag on William Mundo any chance that I get because I am the reason <clears throat> that William Mundo is in a, I just want to pose for the camera just in case anybody wants to take a picture. Um, but I'll let you take it away because yes, I just wanted to shout my mentee out because that was his vision that he made very plain and very, and it, it took off like instantly, but I will let you share more. Yeah. So he is a, I want to say rising superstar, but honestly, he's already a superstar. Um, 
he is he's in his first year about to be done with his about to be done with his intern year had a baby him personally had a baby but his wife had a baby during his intern year yeah and he's in yeah yeah I don't know if he's interested in academics or community but anybody that's hiring in a few years that's watching this podcast you need to write his name down right now because he's literally incredible he's a star but he basically brought together this whole team of physicians that are involved in AEM and put together pretty much the first health equity simulation at Scientific Assembly. And again, this is all him, so I'm speaking on behalf of what he did. Um, But he worked and created this scenario where we had a patient who was saying very derogatory things to the Black nurse. And then he provided participants at Scientific Assembly with the tools for how to be an upstander and how to intervene in that situation. We literally did it like a simulation. He had individuals acting as the patient, individuals acting as the nurses. We debriefed after. Now we're talking about creating a few papers from it. So some narrative experiences on the participants' feelings, how they felt whenever they were going through that, as well as a research paper. So there's just so much coming from just that one project and one idea, which I think is so cool that A provided the structure to let that happen. Absolutely. And more, the more people are getting into the simulation space and the fact that we're needing to understand how we can address all of the needs of our healthcare team and our patients from different identities. People are asking for different learning opportunities and experiences like this. And that is, I think, the magic of AEM. I think that's part of the magic of scientific assembly. I think that's why it's our flagship opportunity for if anyone is interested to getting to know us as an organization. It's because of things like that. He was a medical student like long ago and now he's an intern and was able to present something that was that impactful for our organization yeah that's just a bit of the incredible work that is happening in in our section that's why I just I'm so I'm so glad so I just want to make sure though is this is this health equity sim going to be happening next year at SA in Austin better be so our goal is to make it Our goal is to make it bigger and better. The feedback that we got from participants was absolutely incredible. They all loved the session. Their just biggest thing was that they wish it could have been longer. They wish mm-hmm. they could have had more time to go through different simulations, to debrief after each one, then to come back together as a group after each session. There's so much. And this is really an area where AEM can lead. Simulation. It's not novel to the field of EM anymore, but health equity and healthcare disparity simulation is still relatively novel. And if we can show that we are leaders in this field, like this is such a great opportunity for AEM. And I'm so excited to see where it goes. Like I said, this is publications coming out of this, really just showing that we're providing our scientific assembly participants with numerous opportunities and different ways to learn because we know simulation works. And right. so we're just applying it to a different, different area. And definitely opportunities for places and spaces to grow from conversations that I've had with members throughout the academy, whether they be in leadership positions or 
quote, regular, I would say, members or general members, is that they know that there is a lacking of some of these skills, but it's very difficult to find a place to obtain them. We, we have to be on the spot every day on the job. And it's yeah. easy to use simulation to say, okay, this is what I'm going to do when I run a code, or this is when I need to do code sepsis or what have you. But really tapping into those softer skills that we still need to have other than just the, the nuts and the bolts of how to actually practice medicine. So yeah. again, I'm just so glad that you guys were able to, to put this together and to, to put it out into the world. I'm incredibly proud of all of our station for this. Yeah, all credit goes to Will. And I'll put a plug. So for another research project that I did with a one of the residents here at Carolina is where I am. And one of the med students that was here at the time, so Marie Wolford and Bernard Walson, we looked at the skin color as well as gender diversity of high fidelity simulation mannequins. So the ones that can like breathe, they can have seizures, they can sweat. We looked at them at EM programs across the country because the whole point of simulation is that it works because it's realistic. But what's realistic about treating patients that are every single patient you see that day is white or light skin? Like that's not realistic. And so it takes away from the realism and it doesn't let you practice those, what some people call soft skills. Mm -hmm. So how do you interact with the patient from different backgrounds from you? And so we did a research project that showed that surprisingly the skin color as well as gender diversity of the high fidelity mannequins doesn't match the U.S. population. So it's one of those projects where it's duh, but until we show that it's happening out there, nobody's going to make a change. That's incredible. I don't even know what to say now. You're at the Carolinas. What are some of the things that you're working on at your home institution? Yeah. So I just got my master's. I'm very excited there. Master's in clinical operations. So it was a two-year program, a lot of work. (laughs) definitely worth it. So I'm trying to see how I can apply that into my DEI work right now. And it's interesting because there's not much overlap in terms of what's been done in the past. Just thinking about like patient throughput, is it equitable? We have signs in the ED that are accessible for all patients. What are our discharge instructions for patients with limited English proficiency? What resources do we have for patients that need follow-up primary care? What transportation options do we have for them? So working a little bit more on the ClinOps and health equity sphere. Okay. And also doing a few education projects. So one project that I'm working on is creating a index to med inclusion in any medical education lecture. Mm-hmm. Cause we all say, oh yeah, I want my lectures to be more inclusive, but what does that actually mean? And how are we actually going to measure it? Cause if we don't measure something, you're never going to know if you improve. So we created this index and now we're validating it. And it's basically a scoring tool. Do you have graphics from individuals of all backgrounds? What about different body habituses? Do you have graphics of individuals that are in a wheelchair? What about any other assisted device? If you give a patient vignette, are you using it in a way that could potentially be stigmatizing? So are you talking about a patient with IV drug use? And that is a risk factor. If you are, you giving the actual statistics and getting down to the root cause of it and how we can actually fight that social determinant of health. So really excited about that project. That's really cool. When you were saying clinical operations, and I was just thinking, how does that overlap with the DEI space? But 
I like what you said about throughput times, being equitable for everyone, things like that. Have you spoken to or gotten to know in any way like Crafton Stryer or Joseph Twanmo or anybody that have been doing the EDOC course or? I would love to though. Okay. <laughs> Uh, offline, I will send an email, but they have done an ED operations course and an ED management um, course that you can get a certificate in. I also got the certificate from EDOC as well. So I have that from AAM, but I think that would be really great to look at some of those things and seeing how maybe in our curriculum that how we are certifying each other as far as that course, there might be a ways that you can come in, overlap, and maybe brainstorm with them. So I'll definitely send an email um, to from you to Crafton, like put all of us together. That's really her passion. And she does that at, I forgot her institution. Sorry, Crafton, I forgot where you're at, girl. But that email is coming regardless. forming. Yes, that's definitely a connection. So for sure, I think you guys could really maybe spin off and do something cool with that. So absolutely. We're coming up on our time. Girl, I could talk to you forever, but is there anything that you want to talk about or want to share that maybe we haven't talked about? Honestly, I don't think there's so many. I just want to continue the conversation in general, but I don't think there's any topic in particular. No, I think we just, my last kind of call to action, like I said, is the Jedi section were new, which is such a great opportunity because it means we don't have a lot of the structure yet, which is something I'm working on. But this is really, this is the time where if you're passionate about something within the realm of justice, equity, diversity, inclusion, which is honestly everything, every single topic in patient care, in advocacy, in anything that you, in physician satisfaction, anything that you can think about does overlap with Jedi topics. And so if you're passionate about that, reach out to us. You can just shoot me an email. You can uh, message me on my AEM and just run your ideas by us. And we'll see if we have resources and we can support you in them. My goal as leader is to provide the structure so that things continue, but also really just to provide the support to any section members or non-section members that are interested and passionate about something. Absolutely. I'd also just want to since we're here, just extend the portion that you don't have to be, quote unquote, a, a of color or a minority or identify with any of the groups that you called out as that we're, we're working towards and how we're forming. We welcome any and all. Yes, anyone that wants to improve and learn and to grow and to share into that space, we are welcome. We have our doors open to anyone that is able to work within those confines of being open yeah. and inclusive. So I definitely wanted to throw that out there too. Yeah, I think that's actually, and just like you said, everybody's welcome. Everybody brings such a unique perspective that's incredibly important. I speak on my experiences looking the way that I do, so... I identify as female, so that is one way that I'm underrepresented, but I also look white, come from a certain background. So everybody has some sort of diversity in them. They may not even be aware of it. It might be somewhere back in your ancestry. It might be how you were raised. It might be what resources you had whenever you were in school. Did you go to a particular type? There's so many ways and so many realms of diversity that we all bring something unique. So even if you don't identify as one of the like big categories, like even if you're not black, even if you're not Hispanic, even if you're not from the LGBTQ plus community, you have something unique to bring. And we definitely welcome everybody. Absolutely. 100%. 
Okay, Cortland, you shouted out a few ways some people can contact you. Of course, you can email or go on my AEM, but are you on social media or any other platforms where you're able to be reached out to? I hate social media. I know you do. As your friend, personally, I'm like, I know you do. I actually was talking to somebody about you and they're like, what's her Instagram? And I'm like, oh shoot, I think she does not have an Instagram. I do have an Instagram, but only because I created a side hustle after we had a session with you for our women's group here, created a side hustle for, so I ride horses. I'm on horse. Yeah. Uh, Created a side hustle for equestrian attire. So my Instagram is literally only so I can advertise the side hustle. It has nothing to do with medicine at all. No, so tell me about this equestrian attire. Now, I don't ride horses, but I do like fashion. So maybe I can come up with an outfit or something I could wear to SA or something like that. Well, tell me about it. Oh, um, riding outfit. So it's called eventing attire. I do eventing, which is a three phase. So it's dressage, cross country jumping, and stadium jumping. And yeah, it's just shirts, bags with like funny logos for equestrians. And I think that's one of the beauties of EM is like we have the opportunity and structure within our lives to pursue our other passions. And that's being a horseback rider is one of them. So I was like, how can I bring money to this sport that is literally draining me of every single dollar that I own? <laughs> and looks super cute while you're up there. Yes. Exactly. You're still giving along the way. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. So I want to make sure that I see it and I want people to tap into it because I'm sure there's a lot of equestrians out there. So what is your Instagram handle for that one? That's a great question that I will honestly have to look up. But I think it's Cortland Eventing Attire. It's an Etsy page. The Etsy page is called Eventing Attire. Okay. But I think the Instagram is Cortland Eventing Attire. Does that come up? See, this just shows that I hate social media. Eventing. Okay, I found it. I do actually have a Twitter also. I forgot that I had a Twitter. I need to become more active on it just professionally. But that, I think, is Cortland Brown MD. Okay. So yes, your Instagram that I'm going to follow is Cortland underscore eventing with an E underscore attire. There we go. Look it up. Yeah. <laughs> I will make sure that we have links and stuff to that because I definitely think that would be super cool for people to support. And I also think, like you said, the cool thing about emergency medicine is that we are able to have the time to do different dibble and dabble different things. What I would love to see at Scientific Assembly is to ask some of our membership that do have businesses and opportunities to show that at our exhibit hall and support each other. Like we said, we have so many different things in common. Why not support each other's businesses and see how we can grow and things like that financially? Yeah. So congratulations on your brand new business. I- <laughs> I know 1000% what it means to start a new business. So yes, I'm excited for you. And like I said, I'm gonna check it out so I can maybe come into the scientific assembly with a hat. Perfect. (laughs) I see some shirts. Okay, I see shirts and people are gonna ask me things and I'm not gonna know the answer. I'm just gonna be like, I'm just wearing the shirts. I'm supporting my friend. Go talk to Cortland. Ask Cortland. Ask Cortland. (laughs) And then I'll bring them into the DEI work. (laughs) All right, lady. I will catch you later. And thank you so much for your time. This is so much fun. Yes, we have to do this again very soon. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. 
AAEM is a nonprofit professional association of over 8,000 emergency physicians dedicated to board certification and democratic group practice. For more information about AAEM, visit our website at www.aaem.org.